Good morning. Greetings to each of you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a privilege to be together today. Uh, There are some places in this world we would not be able to do this. But by God's grace, we're here in a country that is still free enough for us to do this, not only here uh, in person, but through technology, and we rejoice in that. Um, Just a a few updates to the announcements that were made earlier. Number one, uh, I understand Sid Howell's band is being moved or has been already from the neurological ICU to the regular floor. They're talking about releasing him, and they're going to try to, I think, leave sometime between Monday and Wednesday, as soon as they can, when he's released from the hospital, to come home here. And uh, he'll be meeting up with doctors to come up with a plan for his treatment there. So do pray for them. Uh, not quite the trip home they thought it would be. For those of you who have those boxes from Operation Christmas Child, I want to say thank you. Um, not because my kids are receiving them, but but uh, I've seen testimonies of children who received a box sent by people like us who had never had a Christmas present before. Some of them never owned toys that were their own before. Uh, uh, but it's not just the gifts, physical gifts, but they also give them a booklet that explains to them the story of the Bible with a series of lessons. And the local Christians teach these children and countless young people come to know Christ as their Savior, hearing about what Christmas is really all about. Not Santa Claus, but the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners. And, and, and for them to realize that there are people around the world who've never met them who, because they know Christ, are willing to sacrifice and send those boxes, it means the world to them. And so uh, if you uh, are still interested in participating in that there are plenty more boxes in the foyer um if they're too bulky some of them are unfolded still behind the 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 little uh uh table there and uh take as many home as you would like to fill next sunday is the deadline for bringing them back you can bring it to a collection center if you want but monday the 23rd is the final day for collecting and so you don't have to do that if you're coming here anyway bring it wednesday nights friday night to youth group Sunday, bring it here, and Monday the 23rd, we will bring it to the local office. Um, used to be you could kind of go in there and wrap more gifts or whatever, but uh, we're distancing a little bit more this year. But it's a great ministry. Pray for those boxes wherever they go. All right, well, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Um, if you've been with us on our journey, you know that. Uh, this is where we are. Our, our brother Tony took us up into chapter, the beginning parts of chapter 19 last week, and uh, we're going to continue. But uh, just by way of review, I don't know about you, but the book of Acts, after a while, starts to look a little bit like that, a little jumbled. I remember places that we've been. I remember names and places. But in reviewing for today, it's like, okay, let me go back. Where did he go on the second missionary journey, and, and what, where are we at in this process? So for the sake of review... It's not just wasting time. One of my Bible school professors used to say, repetition is theological glue, right? You say it over and over enough, it starts to stick. So anyways, we are looking at the book of Acts. And in this book, uh, we are seeing what happened in the early days and years following the Lord Jesus Christ returned to heaven. And after he rose from the dead, he was with his disciples, uh, For 40 days, he went back to heaven and he commissioned them to take the message of salvation 
of the good news of Jesus Christ to the entire world. And the book of Acts shares with how those early disciples did that. And what we've been learning is that there is a verse at the beginning of the book of Acts that kind of highlights this process and how it played out. And we're following this process in this book, right? And we see that uh, Jesus said that in not many days from now, they should stay in Jerusalem. And not many days from now, they would, uh, the Holy Spirit, God would send the Holy Spirit from heaven to indwell them. And he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. And that's right here where they were. And so he says, you'll be witnesses to me there. And that was chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost came. But he said, also, you'll be witnesses to me in all Judea. And that's the surrounding area or region surrounding Jerusalem. And sure enough, the news traveled, right? Suddenly, these disciples, some 120 up in the upper room, start speaking languages languages they'd never learned before. But people from other nations were all gathered there, some 14 different languages. They hear these people speaking, and the word began to spread. And so the witness to Jesus Christ was already beginning to spread. And But from there, we learn that... The religious leaders weren't too happy about this. They called Stephen before them. He testified of the truthfulness of the scriptures and Jesus Christ as a savior, and they stoned him to death. And Saul of Tarsus was there watching it happen. And because of the persecution that Saul began to torture the Christians with, the next phase came to being where the witness went to Samaria, which is the next region beyond Judea, to where we see Peter being called by the Lord to go to a Gentile Samaritan, Cornelius, to his home right there on the coast in Samaria, where Gentiles were now becoming part of the church. And so the word of God was spreading. And ultimately, God, Jesus said that it would go to the very ends of the earth. And so it began to spread and spread and spread. And this is what we're beginning to see in the book of Acts. And of course, if you were here for Acts 15, this is all reviewed to you. So now that we have Jews and Gentiles in the church, we saw that there was a danger because the Jews were coming from a background where they had the law of God and were abiding by it very faithfully. Uh, Well, as good as a human could do as a general, yeah, general statement. uh, uh, But they were religious about it. And but when the Gentiles came into the church, there were some Jewish people who said, no, 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 you don't just come to Jesus. You've also got to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses from the Old Testament. And although both of these groups were believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, they were, there was this rift that was growing, a division that was beginning to start to happen amongst the Lord's people. And so what we saw was that, um, Paul went from, or Saul at this point, was there in Antioch with Barnabas and certain people down from Jerusalem had come up to where they were saying all these things. And because it was causing distress, they couldn't solve it alone there. So they brought those people back down to Jerusalem and went before all of the apostles, the early church leaders there and said, we need to straighten this out. What does the word of God say? And of course, they uh, uh, came to the conclusion that A person is saved simply by putting their faith and trust in what Jesus did when he died on the cross for their sins. No amount of works that we can do, no matter how religious, are good enough to undo the penalty of our sin, which is death and separation from God. And so the only thing that can cure that is coming to Christ, who did live the perfect life, paid the penalty on the cross, and has promised now that all who will come to him, trusting in the work that he did on the cross, 
they could have their sins forgiven and be saved. And praise God, it's the same message we preach today, right? And so if you're here today, you'll hear the same story. Listen, if you're a sinner, which the Bible says we all are, right? We all need to be rescued from the penalty of our sin. And Jesus Christ is good for saving you of your sins penalty today, just as he was 2,000 years ago for these. So having settled the issue, they went back up north to Antioch. And then Paul said, well, uh, as they labored there, uh, I kind of skipped the first journey, didn't I? They'd already been on one missionary trip to this region right through here. And, um, but now he decides to go on another journey. And so starting from here, and this is history we've already covered, right? They went through here to these various cities and coming upon this area, Lystra and Derby, they picked up Timothy and Timothy joined Paul as they began to travel and he wanted to bring the gospel up into those upper regions, but it says the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. So he's looking, where do we go? Where do we go? They end up at Troas where he gets a dream, a vision from God. And this man is saying, come on over to Macedonia and help us. So Macedonia is this next area here up in the Greece Peninsula. And so they said, okay, that's where God wants us to go. So they go up in there. They go to all these different cities, finding persecution. They run out from one town to another because people are turning away from their old religions, turning to Jesus Christ. And these old, uh, uh, these other religious groups are very upset, especially the Jewish people. And so uh, they keep running him out of town from place to place. Well, Paul comes from Corinth over to Ephesus, and he doesn't really spend much time there. Because he says, I want to get back to Jerusalem for the festival. And he does and goes back home to Antioch. And that was his second missionary journey. And that's uh, um, really as far as we got, for the most part, in last week's lesson. Where we pick it up today is that Paul has once again said, I want to go visit the churches. Oops. Yeah, next journey. So he starts to leave from Antioch, goes to those old churches and finds himself again in the town, in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, we were there last week. So Paul comes, he visits the synagogue. He reasons with them from the word of God. These people who were God-fearing people with the word of God already believed it was the word of God. Some of them believed in Jesus Christ. And he began to take them when the Jews began to run them off to the school of Tyrannus, and he taught them there for two years. Two years, Paul stayed there teaching the believers the word of God, and the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. And that's where we're going to pick up our reading for today. In Acts chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to come back and take a look at some of the things that are happening in this chapter. So if you're with me, we're now at Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And so... He sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, 
You know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia in the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But, If you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. We won't dismiss just yet, but that'll come later. Let's just go before the Lord in prayer again, shall we? Father, we do want to say thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the faithfulness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. You promised that he would come and he came. He promised that he would send his Holy Spirit to the early church and he did. He promised that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that process has begun, but it's not finished. Lord, there are still places today where people have not heard of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would catch a vision from what we learn of these early disciples, that we too would have a passion for the lost, that we would come up with our own plans to reach them, that we would see the ends of the earth come to Christ and join us as fellow heirs of the grace of God having eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and a relationship with you. So, Father, I just ask that you would guide our time this morning, that uh, the words that I speak would not merely be my words, but yours, and that they would be true to your word, that you would cause what is true to fall upon our hearts and remain there and bear fruit as we put into practice the things that we've learned. If anything's not of you, Lord, just help it to fall away. 
that our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all glory, would indeed be the one we go away having a, 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 an increased vision and value of him in our hearts. We ask this in his name. Amen. Okay. So Paul's in Ephesus. And um, the basic outline we're going to follow... Oh, title. Um, we're going to call this section the persecution at Ephesus because that's where it happens and there is some persecution. But a subtitle, if I was to give it one, would be the prevailing power and purpose of God, right? Yes, there was persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But he also said to his disciples, right? As he was speaking to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and that means a rock or a stone. But then Jesus says, and I say on this rock, I think if we can visualize it, he'd point to himself right? The mountain, the massive stone that he was. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus promised that he would build his church. He indicated even in this statement that there would be an attack against it, but he said, pay attention now, even the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. My work in my people will prevail. And so I would call this, again, the prevailing power of God, but also the prevailing purpose of God. And we will see that here in our, uh, our reading today. So <clears throat> by way of flow, um, we're going to take a look, first of all, at Paul's plans. He made some plans, and we'll look at what they are and why he made them, etc. And then we're going to see the craftsman's commotion. They didn't like what they were seeing as Paul was following through on his plans, and so they set out to disturb it. The crowd's confusion as they got swept into it. We're going to see Paul's passion, wanting to do something in the midst of it. And we're also going to see the clerk's counsel as we finish out the chapter. Um, I had ideas of doing some other grandiose things with the PowerPoint, but that just didn't happen. So this is kind of where we'll go, and, and we'll let the Word of God, the power will have to be in the point, not in the PowerPoint. Um, so Paul's plans. Notice back here in verse 21, it says, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit. He purposed in the Spirit. This is an interesting word, right? Because it indicates that there was a decision. There was an intentionality to what he was going to do. And it's not just that he's somebody who likes making plans. But I would submit to you today that this is an important concept for our spiritual discipline and spiritual growth. Because you see, if you flip a few pages to the left, to Acts chapter 11, this is the very time where Barnabas brings Saul, the one we know as Paul, to Antioch to join him in helping the early believers, right? So as a number of Hellenists, those were Greek-speaking Jews, uh, 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 came to know Christ as their Savior, we see in Acts eleven twenty one that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came 
and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. So Barnabas goes there and he begins to minister to these people. It tells us in verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So now he's not only strengthening those early believers, encouraging them to have purpose of heart that they should continue in the things of the Lord, but now it says in verse 25, Barnabas departed. Well, why did he leave? For Tarsus to seek Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And this, it says, is where the disciples were first called Christians here in Antioch. And so he said, listen, it's great that you've believed in Christ. It says hey, he was glad to see it. But when he got there, he didn't just have the party with them, which I'm sure they celebrated, but it also says he encouraged them to have purpose of heart, a, an intentional decision to continue in this faith in Christ. So we enter into a new life, a new, uh, 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 yeah, a whole new season of our life, right? Coming to know the Lord is not a get out, get out of hell free card like you get in Monopoly to get out of jail. It's not having fire insurance so that I know that whatever happens to me, I, I, I won't go to hell, although those are both true things, right? We're told in the Bible that Christ has saved us from wrath. We've been saved from God's wrath because Jesus bore it on the cross in our place. But he says, now, when you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. He makes you a whole new person inside. And not only that, but contrary to what we see throughout all the rest of the Bible before this, where in order to worship God, they had to have a special priest who would go in to the holy place and make sacrifices for me or for anyone else. And once a year, could go to the very closest place where you could meet with God to, to make one more sacrifice to put blood there to keep the wrath of God from striking us. No, now the Bible says God makes all of us priests who can come into the presence of God anytime because our hearts have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we can have an intimate, personal, daily relationship with God. And that is what Jesus called eternal life. He said, this is eternal life. Speaking to God the Father, he's like, this is it. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know in an intimate, personal way, God himself. And so, he says, purpose now to continue with the Lord. Walk with him in that close relationship day by day. The same word is used, and I looked it up. You know, the Old Testament was written in a different language. But in Daniel chapter 1, we see a young man who was taken captive with a lot of other young people from Israel and brought to Babylon. Babylon conquered Israel and carted off the most choice, promising young people and put them into a special three-year program for the king. And the king had a plan to try to reprogram these young men to give them his special food, to teach them the, the language and the literature of Babylon, and he even gave them new names to try to give them a new identity that, that would be part of their culture and not the religious Jewish culture that they grew up in. But what does it say in verse 8? This is Daniel 1.8. It says that Daniel, in spite of all that the king had done, even changing his name, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food. 
It wasn't a haphazard choice where he looked at the food and said, mm, I don't really like that kind of food. I don't like the way it smells. I don't like the way it tastes. I'd rather just have... My... No, it says there was a purposeful intentionality to his own relationship with God that that brought him to the place where he said, I am not going to walk that way. I'm going to pursue God. I would just like to encourage us today, challenge all of us, including myself, with the question, how am I doing in my own purposefulness in my daily life? Paul was very intentional. He took to heart the challenge of Barnabas. And what we see here is, when the word of God began to grow mightily and prevail, he said, you know what? I think it's time for us to move on. Because he would tell us in Romans chapter 15, my desire is not just to be here and teach you and, and, and have a good time with you believers. But he said, my heart's desire is to go to the places where no one's ever even heard of Christ. Because the need is still great there. And he, but in order to establish these churches, in order to, to, to help them to continue in the Lord, as Barnabas and Saul had labored in Antioch, they were doing the same thing here in Ephesus. And now he says to himself, we can move on from here. It's taken these two and a half years, but he purposes in the spirit to go to a new location. So he says, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. So, oh, I don't know that I put my map back up there. Oh, bummer. Okay. Uh, that's all right. <clears throat> but on, the, on his journey, he had left Antioch and gotten as far as Ephesus, but the other churches where he had been before, he had not gotten to yet. And so he basically, it says here, he sent Timothy and Erastus on ahead of him into Macedonia to those churches, and he himself was going to come, but it says for a while he wanted to continue in Asia, and Ephesus is one of the cities of Asia. So he said, I want to stay here for a time still before I join you, but he sent them on ahead. He even had a plan, it says, after getting back to Jerusalem from this trip, he wanted to see Rome. See, in that day, Rome was the world-dominant power. So basically, he said, I want to reach the ends of the earth. I want to fulfill the commission God has given us. And so he had a vision and a plan to pursue that. Now, people kind of... Uh, okay, if your Bible's like mine, purposed in the Spirit. Spirit is a capital S in my translation. Right? But the same original word in the Greek is used for the spirit of man, the spirit within us, but also the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. People have raised the question, was Paul purposing in his own heart and mind to do these things? Or was it a plan led by the spirit of God to go there? I'm not going to camp out there this morning, but I'd like to encourage you in preparation for our small groups tomorrow night to consider this question, right? Is there any indication in the word of God how much of these plans were his own, how much of them were directly led by the Spirit of God? I think that there's enough uh, 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 verses in the next couple chapters to, to shed some light onto it, but uh, I, I won't be dogmatic myself, but I think it's worth us wrestling with when it comes to the idea of making plans. Because you know what? All of Paul's plans faced 
changes and challenges, right? He wanted before to go up into Asia, and this is, he couldn't get there. The doors kept closing, and, and it seems that he wasn't sure sometimes whether, am I trying to go where God doesn't want me to go, or is, the, is Satan trying to keep me from getting there because the need is so great? And there's, there, there's some challenges. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with making plans unless we won't let God change them, right? And I, I love that verse in Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's okay to come up with plans, but we need to let the Lord tweak them as we go. I would even say more than tweaking, it seems to me, if I understand, which I don't understand much, but the Spanish version says, el hombre propone, pero el Dios dispone. So we make plans, proposing to go in a direction. God kind of unplans and sends us in a different direction sometimes. And we need to be okay with that. Look at 2020. Who's 2020 has gone like you thought it would? My hand's not up. <laughs> you know, we had these great ideas. Yeah, we want 2020 vision. Let's see what God wants us to do. All the summer plans that we thought we were going to this camp and that camp and, and, and not a single week of the summer went according to plan. And uh, plans are still changing, aren't they? But we can trust in the prevailing power and purpose of God. So Paul comes up with these plans. No sooner does that happen when verse 23 comes along. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Now, the way is a description from, it seems, mostly the outsiders of the message of Christ. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. And the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so as they went from place to place and shared this, it seems that people kept talking. Yeah, these are the people of the way. They reject all the other ways. But they're the people of the way. Kind of a mocking term, but it's a great term because it's true. Jesus said it. I am the way. And there's no other way to get to heaven and have your sins forgiven except through him. But it says a commotion now arose, a great commotion because of the way. And I had to ask myself, what does it mean about that time there arose this great commotion? And why such a great commotion about the way at this time? Well, we didn't read those verses, but the last part of the passage before where we began reading today, we have a little clue. Because while Paul was there for two years teaching, some things were happening. It tells us in verse 11, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, this is, a, this is a striking statement. It would be enough to say God worked miracles by the hands of Paul because a miracle is an exception to the laws of nature. So it's obviously an unusual thing for miracles to happen. But this is not what the Bible says. It says unusual miracles were happening by the hands of Paul. So much so that even if handkerchiefs or aprons that were brought from Paul's body touched the sick, the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out from them. Paul didn't even have to be present. They just took his handkerchief and just touched people with it. And the spirits were being driven out. So that the itinerant Jewish exorcists, people who did not follow Christ, they were of the Jewish faith, they saw what was happening, they saw the power of Jesus, and they went to people who were demon-possessed, and they said, we cast you out, by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. That's what 
Paul was doing in the name of Jesus. He was doing these miracles. And, and yet that's not what happened. On one occasion, verse 15, Acts 19, 15, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and note the word, prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. One piece of silver was a day's wages. So think now what what you would make in 50,000 days of work. That's how much money those books were worth. But these people were so transformed by the power of Jesus Christ in their lives that even though they had dabbled in these evil spirits and magic practices before, they shunned them. Their lives were changed. They were set free from the shackles of the power of these evil spirits over them. And so it says the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. And this is where it says, and about that time, Demetrius rises up and creates a great commotion about the way. Why would he be so upset if people's lives are being changed? Marriages are getting better. Children are getting godly parents. Uh, 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 Workers are getting better employees, in some cases even slaves, who they used to get... A horrible relationship with. Why would he be so upset? Well, we learn about that in verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Hmm. It's about money. So he calls together the other workers who also are the same occupation and said, listen, guys, we're in trouble. So many people are turning to the message of Paul that they don't want our little trinkets anymore. They don't want our little mini idols. And we're going to go out of business. Not only that, but the, 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 the temple shrine that all the people come to, that's why they come to Ephesus to get our shrines, our, our little idols. They're not going to want to come there anymore. We are in trouble. And so... When the, peop- when the other craftsmen heard this, that's when they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So, 1 Timothy 6 says, The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Jesus put it even better. No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll serve the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve God and mammon or money. You can't serve them both. This is a hard thing for us. We're one of the richest countries in the world. Most of us don't see ourselves as rich. But we're, we're tied to our money pretty strongly. And you hear about what percentage we as Christians actually give to missions in other places, it's, 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 it's challenging, convicting, right? Um, we need to be careful that we don't have idols in our own hearts because no one can serve two masters. 
It's interesting because when the commotion begins to spread and all the people hear the great crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians, they start rushing into the square, going along with it, but they don't realize Demetrius's real motive. They are deceived into getting caught up. The crowd was confused about what was really going on. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I want to just come back to talk about this. Idols. We think of idols when we read the Bible as these little shrines, these little statues that people make. And there are religions today who still use and make and worship them. And so we think, well, we don't do that, so we're free of them. But I would submit to you that an idol is anything that takes God's place in our lives. That can be anything. Even gifts from God. I look back and I say, there are times that my wife has taken God's place in my life. My valuing of trying to keep peace with her or whatever keeps me from from saying or doing things that I should do and say. With my children, I won't do the things that I should do because I don't want them to be angry at me. Or maybe it's our boss. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's our reputation. Maybe it's a car. For me, it was for a number of years. It looked like this one. My kids got me a matchbox that looks like it. Uh, But you know, it looks like the real thing. Uh, The bigger version I have at home, which I forgot to bring a a model today, it even looks like the interior of the car. But it doesn't run. The Bible says that idols, sometimes they have eyes, but they can't see. They have hands, but they can't do anything. They have feet, but they can't walk. Can't do anything for us. And yet, why do we turn to idols? Somehow we have to recognize the fact that idols do something for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't go to them. Maybe it's power. Demetrius, his idols gave him power and wealth. And that made him happy. Gave him a lifestyle that he liked. And you know what? When Paul, he says, Paul says that these things that are made with hands are not God's and I'm angry at him. We need to ride him out of town. Now he never asked the question, is it true? Is this thing really a God? Is it possible there's a real God in the sky who is alive and powerful and can do stuff and hear me when I talk to him? He never asked that question. I'll tell you why. It's because the idol and what it brought him in his personal life was more important to him than whether God was real or not. Some of us find pleasure in our idols. The people went to the temple of Diana and it was full of immorality and sexual confusion, perversion. Maybe they liked the pleasure. Somehow they avoided the guilt in their own conscience for the things that they did, but they held on to their idols. Maybe they liked the fact that this God never came to me to correct me for anything I've done. I can just set him up, do my thing, go away and say, I've done my religious duty. I don't have to give any account to this idol. The Bible tells me that God's going to hold me accountable for every word and thought and deed. That's kind of scary. Idols. We just came through an election. I think there's a lot of people 
that have put more trust and hope in what's going to happen in our government than God. I think God cares about the elections. I think he has a plan. But our hope needs to be in God. What are the idols? You know, the, the Jews, their religion was their idol. Here they had the true God and revelation from him, but their religiosity, the carrying, check off the boxes, your own self-righteousness, because you feel good about yourself for doing these things. And you know, we are in danger of that ourselves as Christians sometimes, because we know what's right, and sometimes we get so caught up in just trying to do the do's and don't do the don'ts that we leave God behind. He wants to be a part of our lives, but we can even let our religion, even though if you're a Christian who's born again, you have the only true religion that can connect you with God. But Satan is crafty. That's the point here, is that the re, what, what happened before in the previous part of the chapter was overt oppression, right? The, the evil spirits were attacking and the Holy Spirit was overcoming them. The word of God prevailed over it, right? But when that didn't work, he's going for some covert operations. He's hiding behind men like Demetrius to lead people astray. Just like he hid behind the serpent in the, will, in the garden and led Eve and Adam away from God. So we need to be careful. There's subtleties here and, and, and and, and they can be good things that we get caught up with, but if they take the place, the preeminent place of God in our hearts, we have an idol, even if it's one we can't see. It was hard for me to let go of my car, but amazing, once I put it up for sale and it went around the corner, my heart went, ah, and then it was gone and it didn't bother me. Satan also deceives us into thinking that if we turn away from our idols, that our life will be over. But we, when we let go of the idols, our hands are free to receive all that God has for us. And it's quite a number of blessings. And I've spent too much time on that point. But it's an important point. So these men begin to cry out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I, I'm, I'm glad that we sang, How great is our God today. Uh, maybe we could sit around and sing for two hours like they shouted for two hours about a dumb idol. Maybe it would bless us. They thought Diana was so wonderful. But you know what? The crowd was confused. They got caught up in the, in the occasion and they thought, well, yeah, Diana is our God. And, and, and yeah, yeah, she's great. And so everyone's going to the theater. Let's go with them. Let's join in. And they begin to shout out the same things. They, they're thinking, I don't know who these guys are that they grabbed and they're under arrest, but they must be bad people because they must not be going along with what we're doing. But great is Diana of the Ephesians. And there was civil unrest. There was confusion. There was a mob that was taking place. So much so that it says that they were grabbing these people. And I believe that if they could have, they would have just killed them in the process. But uh, I get ahead of myself just a bit. Interesting. Uh, uh, Warren Wearsby says that a mob is a monster with heads enough, but no brains. The mob mentality loses its mind. Once the, 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 the whole crowd starts moving, it's hard to get out of the current. You get caught 
in the current. When I was in Africa with a missionary, I remember Nelson Mandela was still in prison, and uh, there were rallies around the country wanting his release. And they had one in the little village where we were, and I remember he told me, he said, listen, if they start to lose control, they make them burn our house, the school. There's no stopping the mob. So if the noise starts getting too much, we're running out into the woods. And he told me where they were going. But at the time, neon colors were big, and I had a pair of neon volleyball shorts. And, 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 and he said, but if you're wearing those, you're not coming with us. <clears throat> but he was fully prepared to go because of the mob mentality. There's heads enough, but no, no brains. Uh, that was Ben Franklin, by the way, that said that. Uh, and Max Lerner wrote a book called The Unfinished Country, and he says, Every mob in its ignorance and blindness and bewilderment is a league of frightened men that seeks reassurance and collective action. Do you get that? A league of frightened men that find assurance in collective action. If everybody's doing it, it must be right. It must be okay if everybody's doing it. And so if the masses think it's bad, it must be bad. Not hey, maybe I should check into this and see if it's, if it's really the right thing. We get swept along in the crowd, and we see it happening in our own country. We see it happening in the church. Someone who's popular gets a group moving, and we jump on the bandwagon without really thinking about what we're doing. And we can find ourselves in idolatry and supporting the things that are opposed to God if we're not careful. This is dangerous. It can sound good. Hey, this was their religion. We're in support of it. Those guys must be bad. There's a lot of assumptions going on. And listen, I, this is very interesting. Do you remember when Aaron and Miriam came against Moses to oppose him in Numbers chapter 12? And they basically accused him of taking the, 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 um, the high priest role to himself rather than being appointed by God. This was the public argument. But you know, behind the scenes, the opening verse of the chapter says, they were upset because he had taken an Ethiopian wife. It was a racial thing. It was a skin color thing. They're different from me. And they're taking my spot. And so, they opposed Moses about one thing, but their motive was something totally different. But they didn't tell everybody that. Demetrius didn't tell the crowd, hey, we want to keep making money from you, right? They were being manipulated for purposes totally selfish by the ones who stirred it up, but they went right along with it, blind and deceived. Listen, here's what the Bible says. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the gospel of the glory of Christ and turn to him to be saved, right? And so he's out there covertly working through others who are willing for their own selfish purposes to be the ones to manipulate the masses for their benefit. But meanwhile, they get everyone all up, uptight in this confusion and unrest, thinking it's one thing when it's really another. And it's wrong. And so there's a danger that we can fall into these things if we are not careful. Now, the causes that may come along can be right and good, but the commotion and the uproar can be very wrong. And so we need some discernment. And so I'm not trying to speak to everything that's out there in society. I'm saying, here's what the Bible says happened. And we see these kinds of things happening in our country and we need to, we need to seek God. What does he say? 
because no one ever asked the questions about what was really true. They just got swept away by the cause of the day. So much so, it says they didn't even know why they'd showed up there, but they got caught up shouting for two hours, great as Diana of the Ephesians. So, Paul's passion. What does he want to do? Verse 30 says, Paul hears about it. Let me go in and talk to him. Interesting. The disciples won't let him. Why? Don't they need to be saved? Aren't they deceived into believing a lie? Well, they might have got his head torn off. I don't know that they were in a frame of mind to listen. Paul was seeking open hearts. And with all of his passion, he wanted to run out there. The disciples said no. His friends from Asia pled with him not to go, and he submitted to them. And there's something to learn in that as well. He submitted to those who cared most about him as they together sought to give him counsel. But Paul's passion was for the lost. He always wanted to do the things that would bring people to faith in Christ. So praise God, he was willing even to risk his life for the sake of having this opportunity to speak to the people. He'd been there for two years. He cared about the city. He cared about the people. And, you know, we see that in every church where he goes is that he was self-sacrificing for the sake of those ones, just like Jesus was for us. He laid down his life for us. And um, now we get to verse 35, the city clerk, his counsel. The clerk comes along and says, okay, it took him two hours to get everyone calmed down. Um, then it says... So I guess as long as it takes us some time to get our meeting started, that's no, no comparison. Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? You know what's interesting to me? Demetrius uses deceit and manipulation to get the people to follow his plan for his own purposes. The city clerk's doing the same thing. Does he really think that that statue thing fell down from heaven from the god Zeus? I don't buy it. Um, I don't know that many of them did, but it was a convenient thing. But he's still kind of saying, well, listen, we all know that that's true. No one's arguing with that. Since the, since, verse 36, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. He's like, listen, we've got this riotous occasion, disorderly gathering. If we had to answer to Rome for this, we'd all be in big trouble because there's no reason I can give. So let's all go home and be quiet. But in the midst of this, I see something encouraging. Verse 36 and 37, as well as in verses 26 and 27, we see these men who are opposed to Paul, who also give some truths about him. He didn't badmouth Diana. He preached Christ. So that the clerk would actually say, listen, he's never accused... Where is it? Verse 37. They need, there are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. So you really have no case here. If you really have something, bring forth legal charges. We'll go have a session in court. But there's no. this is just ridiculous. And he sends them away. The same thing could be said of Demetrius here in uh, verse 26. He says that this Paul has persuaded, he's gone throughout almost all Asia, persuading and turning away many people, saying 
that these gods which are made by hands are not gods at all. He's speaking the truth. He's being persecuted for the truth. But he he did it with dignity and kindness as much as he could. The offense was in the message, not because of the messenger. And, you know, as we go forth through those doors to the world God's called us to be witnesses into, we've got to make sure we're doing the same thing. Are we so committed to our idols that they keep us from opening our mouths to speak the truth? Do we care enough about the world to engage them with their lost state because they don't know Christ? Am I willing, like Paul, to go where it might really cost me something, my life? I struggle with these things. I went to the university campus the other week and I walked around for 15 minutes before I could actually bring myself to stop someone to talk to them. But it was convicting, but it was encouraging. God led me to some people to talk to and someone who was a believer who was discouraged that day, hoping God would send them something to to connect with them. So Paul had plans. Demetrius had plans. Satan had plans. But God's power and purposes prevailed. And they will today. And we can join him as we live our lives with him. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord is your Savior, listen, maybe this is all just mumbo-jumbo history to you, but the one that, that Paul was serving is the one who saved me and who saved a lot of people here. And if you need help knowing that your sin's forgiven, if you don't know what it is to, to just trust in him by faith, I encourage you to stop one of us today to talk to us. We'd be glad to introduce you to our Savior because he is worth knowing. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way to the Father except through Him. Lord, we thank You that that uh, our Savior is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He's on the throne today, and He's not up for re-election. That His name wasn't on the ballot, but whoever takes a place of position and power in this world ultimately will give account to Him. And we thank you that he is working, that he's working not only in individuals' lives, in families' lives, in churches, congregational lives, and in our nation, in this world. You are bringing things about to the day that he will be enthroned in majesty on, on this earth, in person, as he promised to do. And we look forward to that day where we can see him face to face. But till then, Lord, give us patience to keep walking with you. Help us to purpose in our hearts to continue. In our faith and our walk with you, we we ask this for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.